You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hi, I'm Amanda. Hi, I'm Grace. Hey, I'm Sarah. Hey, I'm Chelsea, and today we're going to go over the case of Lauren Jackson. She was born September 26, 1983. She was born prematurely and had a list of disabilities. She was born with a cleft palate, a club foot, hydrocephalus, and hip dysplasia. Hydrocephalus is when there is a buildup of fluid above the brain, and symptoms can include an enlarged head, loss of coordination, impaired vision, cognitive difficulties, incontinence, and headaches. I also had a son who was premature, and he had hydrocephalus, and I couldn't find anywhere if she had a shunt put in, and what a shunt does is it drains the fluid from the brain and goes into the stomach, and there is, like, a fine line between whether it's beneficial or more harmful because uh, shunts have risk factors as well. So I couldn't find anything in there, though she did have vision problems. She had four surgeries for her left eye, and she was scheduled to have another one until she disappeared. So I'm not really sure. It doesn't sound like she did have a shunt put in. And then for the hip dysplasia, it is when the hip socket doesn't fully cover the ball portion of the upper thigh bone, which then allows the hip joint to become partially or completely dislocated. Now, I have a cousin who had a daughter with hip dysplasia, and they caught it early, and she had to be in a full padlock harness for 24 hours for six weeks, and then they could get weaned off. And really, it was to strengthen that bone around there. And I couldn't figure out or find what Lauren had had, though I read that she loved to dance, and she obviously could walk around, so... I just don't know how well she could really walk. So I still think it was a slight disability. Yeah, I have a friend who has a daughter with hip dysplasia, and I may be incorrect because I know she has two daughters, but I'm pretty sure they're both fairly active. Um, And, like, I know she actually had to go down to CHOP, uh, I think it was yesterday, uh, just for kind of a regular check-in to make sure things are okay. So, I mean, from what I know from her, it's something that you can live with. Like, it's not going to make you wheelchair-bound for the rest of your oh, life or anything. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm definitely not sure to what extent you can do. Like, I would think probably not cheerleading and gymnastics. Yeah. So I don't know where dance would fall into that, but it might have just been a less severe if... Lauren was, you know, dancing and whatnot. Yeah. It sounds like she had a lot of disabilities going on. Oh, absolutely. And with premature babies, it's like there's usually a long laundry list, though it does sound like her parents were, both of them, working on getting her the help she needed at the time. So she was born to Christina O'Donnell and Michael Mickey Jackson. At the time of her disappearance, she was living with her mother and stepsister, Diana Severns, who was 12 at the time, at Park Springs, which is an apartment complex in Spring City, Pennsylvania. So I'm assuming by stepdaughter or stepsister that the parents were divorced? Her parents actually were never married. They separated in 1987, and Mickey says he kicked Christina out of his home in Philadelphia 
Whereas Christina says she left due to an abuse issue. Though, I guess we'll really never know because both of them were against each other for a lot of the time. Now, this apartment complex was a shady spot that ran deep with violence and drugs, which unfortunately is still a true statement to this day. She disappeared October 4th, 1988, approximately 100 yards away from her own front door. Christina had taken Lauren and Diana to get hamburgers for dinner that night. When they got back, Diana was on her way out to babysit for another family in the complex. She remembers Lauren begging her to take her too. Diana didn't want to have her little sister tagging along and told her no. To this day, Diana has made statements of regret for not bringing her along. Lauren, instead of going with her sister, went outside to play in the dirt with her neighborhood friend, Brian. How old was Brian? Brian was six years old at the time, and he lived only three doors down from where Lauren had lived. Brian's mom had pulled him away when they were playing to go to James Way. Now, there's a little bit of confusion because in the Unsolved Mysteries, um, Christina mentions going. they went to a mall, and depending on what articles you look at, they say James Way Mall. Just clarifying, it was actually Valley Forge Mall, and when we think of mall nowadays, it's not like that. Right now, it's more of like a grocery center slash like little strip. It's kind of small, but like the malls around us now are huge. But James Way was a store, and that's where they had went to run an errand. And when Brian was later asked, he said that he saw Lauren walking towards her house. There was another neighbor witness, whose name is Christina Pellin, who was hanging out in the parking lot with her friends. She remembers seeing Lauren sitting on her steps, playing by herself. She heard Lauren's mother yell that she would have to come in soon. God, I remember those days. Back when I was a kid, I would spend all day outside with everyone in the neighborhood. And I think that, like, all the moms would just peek out and check and make sure that we didn't get in anything that we shouldn't be in. Um, but we rode our bikes everywhere, and usually around dark, and we didn't have streetlights where I grew up, usually around dark, one of the moms would scream that it was time for dinner, and we kind of knew at that point we all needed to get our butts home before every mom started yelling for us. And we kind of made a game out of, like, how dirty you can make the bath water at night. My mom used to hate it. <laughs> Yeah, and that was really what uh, Lauren was doing at the time. She was playing in the dirt with Brian with spoons, and apparently she loved doing it. So Christina Pellin's friend group ended up moving from the parking lot to the side of the building where there was a grassy area. She had forgotten her coat and went to get it. She still saw Lauren on the steps and even waved at her, then went back to the friend group. Shortly after this, Christina and the friends heard Lauren's mother screaming frantically looking for her. The friend group helped the mom look for Lauren. The mother got in the car and was driving around while Christina and the friend group looked at the neighboring houses, the park, and the wooded area near the apartment complex. Now, I wonder how long shortly really is, because it seems like that could be a big factor to determine how long or how far she was from the house um, when she was taken. And how far is the complex from 724, the highway? According to Unsolved Mysteries, Christina said it was a 20-minute period that had elapsed when she went in and came back out. Now, the car apartment complex is almost right off of 724, and when you're looking in Google, Google Maps and you measure it, it's about 0.2 miles, so it's really not that far. Okay. When they couldn't find Lauren, Christina called the police, and Police Chief Richard Weiss assembled a search party. Within hours, there were 100 officers and volunteers looking for Lauren. The search spanned for several miles from Penhurst to the intersection 
of Route 23 and 724. Greater Philadelphia Search and Rescue had bloodhounds who picked up Lauren's scent. From a search manager and footprint tracker, they picked up two sets of tracks that led from the sandbox between the two buildings at her complex over to Park Road, then on to 724, which then led to the Vincent Motel, which would be 0.7 miles from her home. After that, her tracks vanished. The tracker says that the footsteps indicate Lauren was holding hands with an unidentified suspect. He believes from the tracks that the wearer had smooth bottom shoes and wore a size men's 7 to 9. They were not a heel walker, and the person approximately weighed 120 pounds to 160, but apparently that was hard to determine since the prints were more in a dust-like material instead of a wet, like, soggy, like, mud. So there wasn't a good print. Can you just kind of explain what a heel walker is? So they're, um, yes. Uh, in high school, I had a friend who only walked on her toes. Um, so there's, like, okay. a complete difference. So if you're, like, starting on your heel and going down, whereas there's people that literally just walk on their toes and their heels will never touch. It's kind of like almost wearing a heel. Uh, I forget what it's called, uh, what the syndrome is called, but I'm assuming that's what they meant. Okay. People that wear high heels typically aren't heel walkers because it puts too much pressure on the heel versus and that, like, little point from what I've gathered. Don't know if that's mm-hmm. 100% true, but huh. I don't wear heels, so I can't tell you. Same. I have no idea. So this guy probably wore heels a lot. <laughs> that's <laughs> pretty possible. specific information. So. Yeah. And I honestly, before this, I didn't realize that a tracker could, I guess, glean that much information from a footprint. Though I think they were saying that they could have potentially more information if it was in a better medium. Mm. That makes sense. Okay. It was also noted that Lauren's prints were closer to the road than the suspects, which if you're a parent and you're walking with your kid, if you're walking along a road, nine times out of ten, you're going to be the one closest to the road. So there's kind of speculation that maybe it was a kid leading her away. Um, also, with the shoe size being seven to nine, that's pretty small for a men's size. So another reason why some people were thinking maybe it was a teen that was taking her. At the end of the tracks, it doesn't look like there was a fight put up or a scuffle, which indicates it seems she knew the person. Day-to-day searches lasted for two weeks, and in the first two days, uh, Search and Rescue had drained 19 local ponds. Wow. Yeah. There was a lot of speculation about the mother's involvement with the disappearance of Lauren. Just two months before the disappearance, Christina was arrested for impersonating a doctor to obtain a prescription for proboxifene. Did I say that right? Sure. Okay, checking. Which is a highly addictive opioid painkiller. One of the common brands of that would be um, Darwin or Darvaset, and it's a time release capsule that um, time release opioid. And to get around that effect, they would crush it up and snort it, so they would get the effects right away. In 2010, the FDA actually started to ban. Um, that specific drug in the United States because of how addicting it was and the amount of accidental and intentional overdoses that happened. And they also had um, some long-term effects with the heart and seizures. But I think there might be a generic version of it that is still on the market currently. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Darvon because Christine would always refer to this charge as stupid or silly, and it's because she feels that she had a liver disorder 
she was legally prescribed Darvon and then along the way kind of got addicted to it. And so how she ended up getting caught is she called the pharmacy. She pretended to be a doctor. The pharmacist kind of was a little bit like, this is sketch, called the cops. They showed up as she was pulling in with Lauren in the car, and that's how they um, got her. But even though she was prescribed that, she did have a drug addiction, which she readily admitted to when asked. But on the other side, Mickey also admitted that he struggled with alcohol addiction himself. Mickey claimed that Christina didn't want to take care of Lauren, but refused to give her to him. Christina always claimed her innocence. In the early 1990s, a grand jury convened to determine if Christina could be held responsible for Lauren's disappearance, but after four months, they declined indicting her. Christina died in 2011, still clinging to her innocence, though it is strange in her obituary her family only mentioned her having one child, Diana. That is pretty weird. Yeah, that's weird. And, like, I try not to pass judgment on people. I've obviously never had a child die. I've never, like, died before a child. So I've never been in that situation. But it feels like there's no reason to leave her out. Even if there's the mystery of we don't want to say she's dead, we don't want to say she's alive because we don't know. Like, you don't have to put that detail you can just say that you know christina had two daughters i don't know it seems weird i can't pinpoint a motive to leave it out but it's just i don't know it hits me weird did it say something maybe that she was survived no by a do- no okay it was completely left out interesting okay maybe she got a lot of backlash from it um, you know, it was in the media a lot and she obviously went to court for it. So maybe the family, cause obviously, I mean, I doubt that she wrote her own obituary. Maybe the family just felt to give it some closure, just not to hash that up. Well, another theory, uh, as we get further along, but I'll touch on it fast is that her family had taken her because they didn't like her in that situation. So that is a theory that we'll get to. Later on, shortly after Lauren disappeared, an 11-year-old girl claimed she saw a white man forcing her into a car, but this was never corroborated. Months later, a woman came forward saying that she saw Christina forcing Lauren into a car with two elderly people at James Way, was at the mall, and this place is still there today. People will know it as Redner's, and it has aerials in it. I think it had staples in it, or that might have shut down recently, but it's still there. She claimed that this incident happened at 7 p.m. on October 4th. She even ID'd her later on as a woman she saw, but the time conflicts with when neighbors saw Lauren playing in the mud. They put that time at 7.15. And Christina says in Unsolved Mysteries that with her arrest for the uh, drug problem, that she would have been recognizable and that she was wrongfully ID'd by this person at probably was another family and that's kind of sketchy and raised some eyes uh after that aired. though mickey thinks that it's a possible scenario because christina didn't want lauren but she also didn't want mickey to have diana claimed that lauren would never wander off on her own or go with a stranger whereas neighbors said they would see her wandering on her own often Lauren would even walk along 724 with older girls to go to a convenience store and did it multiple times before disappearing. 
Tips ended up dying down and there were zero leads. In 1991, America's Most Wanted aired a brief segment on Lauren's case and it generated zero leads. April 24, 1994, Unsolved Mysteries covered the case and interviewed Lauren's parents. The mother's comments and reactions did not sit well with the audience, which then re-sparked speculation into Christina. Though, with airing the episode, hundreds of tips started to come in from all over the country. By this time, there was a new chief of police named William Dembski. His office followed up on the majority of tips, including a lead that took investigators to Michigan. A charity worker called in a tip from a woman who didn't know her identity and was abducted as a kid from the East Coast. It ended up being that she made the entire story up. They also worked on a tip that came from California and worked with the FBI when the progressed photo matched another woman named Lauren, which ended up not turning into anything. That's super weird and specific. It is. It is so specific. But they got so many tips. Not only did the investigators travel, so did the father. Father had gone with the police down to Florida Mm. because they thought um, Christina's family also had something to do with it, and they lived in Florida at the time. Okay. Now, Lauren's case is still open, and Dembski has said it is still a complete mystery. There really is no theory, and we don't have any information that is going to lead us in any one direction. Retired FBI investigator David Riker, who worked on the case for 10 years, said he'd love to see it reopen again by the FBI. He made the statement, someone has to know something. Even if you don't want to tell the police, tell someone. Now, there are a boatload of theories that surround Penhurst in conjunction with Lauren's case. Penhurst State School and Hospital was known as the Eastern Pennsylvania State Institution. It was an institution for mentally and physically disabled individuals. Due to the controversies of their treatment and experiments, it closed in 1987. When it closed, all the patients were released, many who stayed in the area. Several former patients had moved into Park Springs apartment complex. It was even known that former patients would constantly break back into Penhurst since that was really all they knew. There was a heavy emphasis on searching the property, including utility tunnels, sewers, and manholes. Nothing turned up. Today, it is known as having dozens upon dozens of unmarked graves all over the grounds. It is theorized that it was a chore to keep with all these patients to keep up with all these patients, and the town has a lot of secrets, especially pertaining to these unmarked graves. So that makes me uneasy. (laughs) I mean, some of them, that's an understatement, but some of them moved into the apartment complex, but where did the rest of them go? Like, I'm sure that's a lot of displaced people, and you would hope that the state would have some sort of contingency plan, but it doesn't sound like that was the case. Um, I mean, it have wasn't. Have you ever the... been in Pennsylvania? <laughs> <laughs> we have no contingency plans for anything. Yeah, I was actually just going to say it certainly wasn't the case for a lot of other asylums that got shut down. So I'm sure right. it wasn't the case for this one. So where did they go? A lot of them had moved into other communities like Park Springs. There's a trailer park right across from 724. Some went to other facilities within Pennsylvania. Some went back with their families, and some were just homeless. Hmm. I mean, we're talking um, like when we look back at the Terry Bowers case, was it wasn't that far off from then, and there was almost twenty eight hundred people there. Yeah, a lot of people to just release, and it can be really hard to assimilate back into public, not having been around. I, 
quote-unquote regular ed or regular people. They're not ready for it. There was no training or any uh, therapies to get them ready for the real world, and it's really sad. Just like, okay, bye. Yeah. They, (laughs) it was awful. Now, Penhurst was state-owned, but since then, part of the grounds have been given to East Vincent Township, and another portion is now privately owned as a horror amusement. Now, this is a huge controversy nowadays, but East Vincent Township has proposed building a park on their portion of the land since 2014, but these developments have been delayed. Some people think it is because they're worried about uncovering bodies. A footprint tracker who helped the Greater Philadelphia Search and Rescue still follows this case closely and is constantly looking for more clues and compiling more information. He had attempted to give all his info to the police and hadn't gotten the best response. He feels that they do not want to deal with the case and refuse to call him back, which also feeds into the theory that police do know who took and possibly killed Barn. They don't want the public to know because it theorized it is a pen first patient, and releasing information would lead to a huge case against the state for allowing hundreds of patients being released without support and nowhere to go. Oh. Okay. I, I can see that being plausible. Okay. So many local people felt and still feel that the mom was involved. They believe she traded, sold, Lauren for drugs, or she pissed off the drug dealer. Statements with police and interviews had people question her involvement. Nothing was ever brought about it, though, but Mickey still believes to this day she was involved somehow. So many times we hear about abuse and mistreatment of children with special needs, and given that Lauren had all of these special needs, maybe mom was worried about getting her next score, but then on the flip side, she was getting all of these surgeries done for Lauren, so maybe she was selling drugs for money to pay for the surgery. Now, I haven't watched any interviews with the mom, so, I mean, take this with a grain of salt, but if she was responsible, wouldn't you, or wouldn't she have waited longer to report Lauren missing? Because it seems like there was a very small amount of time between Lauren disappearing and her mom kind of freaking out about it. Yeah, but then you look at other cases where the parents have been suspected, and bad example to use, but Casey Anthony, I mean, she didn't even report her child missing, her parents did, and it was a month later. But we've also seen cases where parents wait a day or two days, and then they're immediately looked at as a suspect as well. Um, So I feel like maybe the quick response more so made it look like she is innocent, because if she's checking on her kid every 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever, She's going to see her out there, look out again in 20 more minutes and realize, oh, crap, she's not there. And people have vouched for the fact that Christina was checking on Lauren. So I don't know. I I don't lean as closely toward the mom as I think everybody else does in this case. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to go back to Amanda's comment. She had mentioned about all her needs getting met. Now, obviously, I was not alive back then, but I had a preemie baby. And the state has a program, if your child is born under two pounds, you automatic, that child automatically qualifies for Social Security. And okay. not only that, if you get disabilities, you also get insurance for free. And on top of that, um, there are other programs 
for the disabilities that you can get money for. And there are tons of programs. I'm sure they are different today as they were then to get help for kids with disabilities. Um, and I know we didn't really utilize it because we made too much for it, but I mean, the amount that SSI would pay out for a child is fairly high. I mean, Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's I, high. Um, <laughs> I, uh, our, our son has autism and he had to have some dental work done and his thankfully medical assistance helped because it was like $22,000 worth of dental work. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely stuff that is helpful in those situations because you have to have all this, all these specialty doctors to do different yeah. things. Um, I don't know, like as far as what the system looked like back then yeah, and how much assistance did they give? And, but then you also have to look, they had Penhurst for people with disabilities. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe they didn't have anything at that time, but it, it was stated so many times that her family like was involved and they tried to help as much as they could with Lauren and helping. So maybe they helped get her to appointments. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure though, but it is a good, you know, thought like she was, you know, in our eyes, getting what she needed. I mean, who knows if that's true or what? I know for us, for medical assistance, because I have it for my son, special needs, if we don't get certain things done, he could lose his insurance. Um, it's like, oh, a, yes. it's a very, very strict thing because I mean, it is free and they cover a lot of things that some private insurances won't. And so they will follow along with you. You get like a case manager and they will call you. Like we didn't get my son. We didn't take him to the dentist this past year because our dentist refused to let someone back in the room with us, even though our son is special needs and is under 18. And it was a huge problem. I was like, oh, this is going to blow over soon, which, oh my gosh, it obviously hasn't. So, 2020. Yeah. Womp womp. So then the insurance called and they're like, we're going to drop you by Friday if you don't get an appointment. I'm like, oh my gosh. So, I mean, they're really on top of you. So I don't know if it was the same then, but you never know. Wow. Then another local theory is they believe she was taken by someone who didn't want her to live in the condition she was currently living in. It does go back and forth if the mom knew and helped get her out of Spring City or not. It is believed that she is still alive and living a better life than what she would have gotten with her family then. And another theory is about a man who lived across from the apartment complex in a trailer park, which is still there to this day. A couple of years after Lauren, dis Lauren disappeared, he was accused of child molestation. Before families knew that he was a danger to their children, they always let their kids go and play at his house. And then after the whole entire child molestation, uh, he ended up dying by suicide. The last theory I'll list is that she wandered off and was accidentally hit. The person driving panicked and took her body and disposed of it. I feel like since there would have been no planning in that case, it would have been haphazardly done and the body would have been found by now. Oh, totally agree. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Nobody within a 20-minute time period, I don't think it's super plausible, but I see where people want to think that. This is a pretty busy road, too, and it was during the day, so I, I can't imagine that someone didn't see something. 
Yeah, and I guess it's because, like, she had some vision problems, and when she would travel along 724, she was usually following somebody. Um, and, I mean, I guess it would be possible that she could easily accidentally walk, you know, into oncoming traffic. But, as you said, I mean, even back then, I mean, it's a busy travel, travel road, and there's a lot of houses there, and there was a trailer park. I definitely would think someone would have saw something. Yeah. When Lauren Jackson disappeared, she was wearing a white long sleeve shirt with a California raisin on the front, possibly the back, black knit pants with an iron stain or burn on the back, and the white Reeboks with pink laces. She was approximately 2 feet 6 inches and weighed 34 pounds. She has brown hair and hazel eyes. Lauren has surgery scars from a double hernia, scars from a cleft palate correction. She has a club foot and hip dysplasia. If you know anything, please reach out to East Vincent Police Department at 610-431-6363 or 610-933-0115 and or the FBI at Newton Square at 610-353-4500. There are age progression pictures, which we will post on our Instagram. There's someone out there that knows more. Please reach out. Let's bring closure to Lauren's family that is still looking for her. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by Chelsea Brown. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. The music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.